Hello, and welcome to Resolutions, a podcast about dispute resolution and prevention. I'm your host, Jason Harper. The Resolutions podcast is a project created by the ABA section of Dispute Resolution to increase the avenues where we can connect. Today, we will be discussing mediation education, as well as the ABA's annual Advanced Mediation and Advocacy Skills Training Institute that will take place virtually on December 1st through the 3rd of 2022. Here to discuss those topics are Dr. Deborah Dupree and Harold Coleman. Dr. Deborah Dupree is a dispute resolution specialist, conflict coach, mindset doctor, international trainer, and keynote speaker, as well as podcast host of the show, Decoding the Conflict Mindset. She is an avid educator teaching at the California State University San Marcos, California Western School of Law, National University, Rio Can College, and on the faculty for the American Arbitration Association, also known as AAA. She teaches internationally as a workshop series instructor for Hong Kong Institute of Mediation and City University of Hong Kong Law School. With over 30 years of experience, Dr. Dupree has served as a board member on a number of local and national dispute resolution associations to advance and promote the field of mediation for peacemaking solutions. And she currently serves on the AAA Employment Mediation Panel and actively mediates workplace disputes. Harold Coleman Jr. has amassed over 30 productive years in the dispute resolution field as a civil litigator, arbitrator, mediator, ADR teacher, and trainer. He has tried, deliberated, and awarded hundreds of complex commercial and construction disputes in the role of American Arbitration Association appointed arbitrator. He has also negotiated settlements for hundreds of complex technical, commercial, employment, and probate matters in the role of American Arbitration Association, AAA, and Superior Court of California appointed mediator and conciliator. For the past 10 years, Harold has served the AAA leadership team as a senior executive for mediation and in that role oversees the association's diverse mediation and professional development initiatives. Next Level Mediation Software is a mediator's best tool for advancing their online dispute resolution practice. It takes into account the psychological attitudes of the disputing parties and helps mediators find the key priorities to negotiate. Based on decision science and an easy-to-use interface, the Next Level Mediation Platform can handle the most complex disputes. Register today at nextlevelmediation.com for your complimentary 30-day trial of the subscription service and enter the code ABA discount 20 for a 20% discount. Deborah, Harold, thank you so much for being on the program today. So with that in mind, I'd love to start with a question that really just sets the table for this entire discussion. And that is, and I'll start with you, Deborah, what is the essence of mediation as a process of dispute resolution? Well, thank you so much, Jason. And thank you again for the opportunity of being here as part of this show. You know, one of the things I like to share with people is that I fell in love with mediation uh, when I suddenly found myself working in employment disputes regarding employees with employers with medical disputes, medical issues in the workplace. And I found mediation to be a very 
strategic and yet essential process to helping people come together with divergent thoughts, perspectives, views uh, about issues that need a resolution uh, as a, a way of successfully navigating through a strategic process. And so, um, you know, what I see as the beauty, the essence of mediation is that it's a safe way for people to come together, again, with a strategy, with a process, uh, with the end in, in mind as far as reaching resolution uh, in ways that both parties gain. So mutual resolution of the issues before them. And so, uh, again, to me, it's about psychological safety, people being in conflict, people approach conflict from different perspectives. And uh, by having a facilitated process with the aid of a mediator, then we're creating that process for people to successfully and safely come together regarding issues where they're at odds. Fantastic. Thank you. And, and Harold, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you the same question. In your view, what is the essence of mediation as a process of dispute resolution? You know, Jason, the essence of mediation, in my judgment, can be summed up with the alliteration of the three P's. And by that, I mean people, problem solving, and peacemaking. That is the real essence of the process. And as our listeners uh, may know, mediation as a non-adjudicative form of dispute resolution is really intended to be cooperative and collaborative rather than adversarial. Uh, I will tell you in my uh, over uh, 30 years in the ADR field and having mediated so many litigated disputes, it's regrettable that all too often counsel and sometimes parties themselves view the participants in mediation as being adversaries. It's an extension of the adversarial trial process and that it is not. It really is meant to be different in tone, in approach, and even attitude. So it's about people, problem solving, and peacemaking. One thing I always like to underscore in any presentation on mediation is that this process is first, fundamentally, and foremost about people. Not first and foremost about the law, not first and foremost about the facts, all those, although those are important, it is first fundamentally and foremost about people. And if we all keep that in mind, uh, mediators for sure will certainly always do the next indicated right thing. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And so that brings me to my next question. And, and Deborah, I'd love to start with you again. How do you feel that mediation is distinguishable from other processes in the ADR field? That's a great question because, you know, so often people, you know, view conflict as something to be avoided or something to aggressively embrace. And so uh, very often conflict resolution uh, or dispute resolution, as Harold just mentioned, embraces much more of an adversarial approach. Who's the winner? You know, uh, rather than, again, I'll use the words, both gain. And, and so, again, the mediation process is not about arguing your position, uh, arguing your case, but instead, you know, what's important to you and what, what needs to be resolved to bring resolution. And so it's much more, and again, I'll, I'll just draw on what Harold just mentioned, is it's a collaborative approach, not a confrontational approach. 
And that's the essence of where mediation is so different from arbitration or, you know, the, the legal process in that people come together to mutually resolve um, differences, uh, whatever they might be about, whether it's family, workplace, you know, some other commercial or civil differences. Um, but it's about people coming together and working through their differences in hopefully amicable ways, not confrontational ways. Thank you very much. And and coming back to you, Harold, because I'd be remiss if I if I didn't uh, give you the opportunity to answer this question, particularly given your history as an arbitrator, a conciliator, as well as a mediator, how do you view mediation as being distinguishable from those other ADR processes? Well, I got to tell you, Jason, at the risk of uh, repeating myself ad nauseum, I can't emphasize enough how mediation is intended to be non-adversarial in not only tone, but in approach, in style, but also in attitude. It is really meant to be cooperative. And we have to see the parties and participants as really being collaborators in the interest of joint problem solving. So different from adjudicative processes of arbitration on the one hand and litigation on the other, where parties are truly adversaries, and there is uh, very typically going to be a win-loss outcome, not true in mediation. We can truly try to achieve a, uh, a mutual win, a both win. I've heard it expressed as that before, a win-win outcome that really addresses, hopefully, the core interest. This word interest is a broad statement that means the real deep needs and concerns, fears, aspirations, and motivations of the parties, the real people living this horror called a conflict, especially when it escalates to the point of litigation. And uh, that's what uh, the magic of mediation is. It is really about party self-determination and where parties can really control their own fate. And that is, the, to, for me, the most important distinction between mediation as a non-adversarial process and adjudication, whether it be arbitration or litigation, which, of course, is just that. It is adversarial. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, and that brings me to uh, my next question. When we talk about mediation, uh, in a number of circles, there's been a lot of a lot of debate, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of rancor uh, in regards to education for mediators, and and how do we uh, distinguish uh, quality mediators? So, in, in your view, Harold and Office, I want to start with you on this. What are the minimum educational requirements for entry to the profession? Well, Jason, the uh, education requirements are largely dictated by the what are called court connected mediation programs that are available in most major metropolitan areas across the country. In the late 80s and in the uh, well into the 90s, um, the courts really got behind mediation because of a number of decisions that, uh, uh, that emanated all the way from the U.S. Supreme Court down through inferior courts to where we saw mediation is really being magical to help relieve court dockets. So for that reason, different courts uh, then started mediation programs, first as pilots, and they defined 
the minimum education requirements, which are largely true even to this day. And they are as follows. A bachelor's degree is typically required for credentialing to be on a court-connected program. Bachelor's degree at a minimum educational, and it can be in any field. And I am so excited about that because mediation is highly interdisciplinary. And though it's used in litigated cases quite a bit, the reality is the lawyers don't necessarily have a corner on that uh, market or, uh, or, or, or preoccupy the space. Uh, it is highly interdisciplinary. So any batch of field of study at the bachelor's level will suffice. And then it requires very typically the modal value tends to be 30 hours. Some jurisdictions require 40, some require 25, but the modal value appears to be 30 hours across the United States of actual formal mediation training of which 12 of those 30 hours must have a practical simulation case simulation, role play, experiential component to it. In addition to that, it requires, of course, references, professional references, and uh, it will very typically require that a, a new mediator have in fact mediated, and there are different requirements depending on the court system, but uh, very typically anywhere from uh, at least five cases from beginning to end throughout all phases of the mediation process from initial planning, through convening, through uh, rounds of uh, joint discussion and caucusing, through conclusion. And those tend to be the predominant uh, qualifying criteria to get on a court panel these days. There is no state licensure per se, so there's nothing else in the public space that imposes mandatory minimum education requirements. So what we try to do is track what the courts are doing and requiring for court annex mediation purposes. And I appreciate those, you know, the three aspects of, uh, of, of mediation education, uh, particularly from the education component, which to the point that you mentioned earlier, uh, a bachelor's degree in every, in any area of, of study, that really speaks to the diversity of, of the mediation field. Right, and it allows for more people to be in that space, which serves the general public as I see it. Then obviously going into the performance uh, component and having the ability to demonstrate your skills as a mediator in live action mediations. I think that's extremely important. And I know as the uh, the executive uh, director of aaamediation.org, I know that uh, you know aaamediation.org has panels themselves. Uh, can you give us a little bit of insight as to the, the qualifications for those panels? And are they similar? Do they go a little bit above and beyond? Tell us a little bit about that. They are very similar, except they do go beyond because uh, to then become what we call an affiliate mediator with the aaamediation.org panel, uh, one has to have a more advanced mediation training they have to also have mediated uh, quite a few more cases and is really meant for the more advanced practitioner. Um, one neat thing about aamediation.org is that we cast a very wide net. In other words, uh, independent mediators who also uh, may service areas in which the association doesn't necessarily uh, provide mediation services in the areas such as family. Uh, another might be probate, another might be elder law, these really specialized areas. Well, aaamediation.org affiliate mediators can come from those fields and find a home 
and have an opportunity to grow in this vibrant community of uh, mediators and exercise thought leadership. So another great thing, as you just said, uh, Jason, is the diversity that is really promoted by having, by viewing mediation as an interdisciplinary field uh, for which there is no one entry into the profession. Yeah, lawyers use it a lot. And you, as you'd expect, legal people, legal practitioners, those trained in the law uh, certainly should be comfortable and know quite a bit about it. And certainly if they are going to be a lawyer mediator. However, the principles, the parties who come to us with their conflicts and their disputes are not just lawyers and don't necessarily come from the legal field. So we need mediators who can relate to people in a wide spectrum based upon diversity of life experiences and diversity of education. And I think that's so important because one of the things that I think uh, you know we tend to do is uh, conflate expertise in one field with competence in another. And, and that's one of the best reasons why I think that you know the, the education component that aaamediation.org requires from their affiliate mediators, uh, their affiliate panel, as it were, uh, is so important. And when we speak about the diversity and just the, 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 the emphasis on the educational aspect. But one aspect that I would like to follow up with you on, Harold, is the continuing education piece. What do you believe to be the minimum continuing education required to maintain practice efficiency? Well, you know, it's interesting, Jason, because um, that varies again across the board, depending on who the uh, regulating agency is, whether it be a court or whether it be a private uh, um, entity or nonprofit entities such as the American Arbitration Association. But uh, what I have seen to be kind of the absolute minimum is at least four hours of advanced uh, continuing education each year for practicing mediators. And that is a real, real bare minimum, it truly is. And it very typically can be in any aspect of uh, people and problem solving and peacemaking. You know, it's not necessarily prescribed to uh, automatically have to relate to any one subject, uh, very typically, uh, at least for lawyers who uh, want the mediation credit towards their, uh, their statutory obligation for uh, CLE, they will want some ethics credit as part of that. So you'll find the better, in my judgment, uh, mediation continuing education programs will also feature ethics mediation ethics, uh, might even be negotiation ethics for lawyer, but it's something I will tell you and assure you at the association uh, that we really, really are serious about and I've tried to build into all of our mediation course offerings is an ethical overlay to everything. Ethics is the thread that runs throughout all of our trainings, no matter if they be in the hard skills, technical skills of negotiation, et cetera, or be on the people side, the soft skills, they all have an ethical bent. And why is that important? I always like to say, we need not mediate perfectly. If we're honest and transparent, none of us ever has, none of us ever will. We need not mediate perfectly. We need only mediate effectively and ethically and hence the import of ethics as ongoing continuous 
continuing mediator education. I think that's fantastic. And I couldn't agree more, uh, particularly from the ethics uh, standpoint. But when we talk about uh, continuing education, uh, I, I think there's there's a mindset that uh, that Harold you have described as a, a lifelong learning mindset, and uh, and and when we talk about that, and Deborah, I'd love to to come back to you on this. Uh, why is a, a a quote lifelong learning mindset critical to mediation service and practice success? Well, I'll jump in on that one because um, I, I I think you know going back to what Harold first said as far as the minimum of training is it's one thing to to know and understand the process you know, the, the roadmap, so to speak, about how to navigate people through discussion of their their issues, their differences, you know, their perspectives, the impact of, of the dispute on them. So that's the process. That's what you get in the basic learning. But then people are people, and the diversity and the depth of understanding people in conflict is what where, you know, we need to continue to learn and to... Um, Understand, and that's one thing about the the process of mediation. It's it's, it's a confidential process, and so the thing is, is we don't readily have people who observe and give feedback. You know, unless you're in some kind of training program, and um, you know, I had the good fortune for many years to work with the Navy's program and was a mentor to many mediators. And and you know, it's it's I like to say how we show up matters, and so how we come across. You know, the words we use, and that's one thing I know Harold and I share a passion around as far as, you know, keeping the uh, litigation lingo from the courtroom out of the mediation process, because we're not here to be adversaries, we're here to collaborate. And so the words we use become very important. And that's where, you know, I, I have such great fun, quite frankly, being an, uh, an avid educator and a lifelong learner and teacher myself about helping shed insights. Uh, to people in terms of how to approach things differently. And, um, and that's one of the things I enjoy bringing to the field as well as the understanding of the neuroscience behind human behavior in conflict because there, there are strategies and, again, techniques, words that we can use that can help mitigate, uh, de-escalate uh, the emotional intensity that shows up for people. And that's what we continue to learn. Um, you know, if you look at the medical field and, and what we continue to learn and understand about the human being and, and the mindset, um, then that's what we as professionals, uh, with our ethical responsibilities of safely guiding people through conflict, becomes mm -hmm. so imperative. And the only way we, we can do that is by continuing to engage in lifelong learning. Absolutely. And when you talk about the mindset, obviously neuroscience is absolutely a part of that because that is literally the mindset. Um, Harold, I'd be remiss if I didn't come back to you with the same question. You know, the, the concept of lifelong learning mindsets, uh, in your view, what makes it critical to mediation service as well as practice success? Jason, and you know, it's interesting. I was very uh, privileged and blessed to attend a very good private high school in the Midwest. And in our model, which I will tell you necessarily at the time didn't, didn't really mean that much to me because I didn't have the prism of experience. But now that I look back after many, many decades, how right they were. The school's model was learning today, leading tomorrow. Learning today, leading tomorrow. Why must lifelong learning be part of one's individual ethos is because 
uh, leading and the roles we prepare to do, and especially the roles we assume as healers of conflict and stepping in as effective and ethical interveners requires ongoing, rich, deep, thought-provoking, really uh, value-conferred learning. I, I, I tried to find the source uh, of this uh, quote, uh, but I couldn't do it, you know, because I want to give a proper attribution. But the quote is that uh, very simply, the key to learning is in not knowing. The key to learning is in not knowing. And I recently uh, had a really, really difficult commercial real estate case that I was invited in as intervener mediator to help these really sophisticated business people resolve, landlord, tenant, and, and, and the ultimate resolution turned on some creative financing, dealing with what's called internal rates of return uh, and also net present value. And, and, and I've done commercial cases. I understand the basic concepts, but it got so nuanced and I was in over my head in terms of just the finer aspects of accounting, uh, of finance, on which uh, a deal ultimately was going to turn. So what I had to do was use my mediator skills, focusing on process facilitation to help these individuals see, number one, I was teachable and I'm learning, but really ultimately no one is in a better position to craft a resolution that works for them better than they would be. And if I, as a trained and experienced mediator, and who did understand quite a bit about the finance aspects of this, couldn't quite get all of it and the nuances, imagine what a jury is going to struggle with. Imagine what a judge is going to struggle with, perhaps even an arbitrator, and how then I was able to coach them into really giving this process its best, leveraging their expertise. And of course, we did get to a full resolution. But all of this, I believe, is cloaked in this mantra of lifelong learning. We must be lifelong learners to discharge this very, very important work uh, to which we've been charged ethically and effectively. And, and one of the things that you mentioned in, in that entire answer is you know, I think a very important aspect and that being, you know, obviously you mentioned the, the key to, to learning is not knowing, but in the not knowing there's a humility, right? There's a humility in, in being willing to ask the questions, even if you feel as though, you know, the subject matter to the willingness and the humility and asking the questions and seeking to understand, seeking to learn is such a huge aspect as well. Uh, you are spot on, Jason, and I'll tell you, uh, you know, Dr. Dupree, uh, uh, with whom I've done an awful lot of training and have learned so much from, she could speak to this more deeply than I could because she's trained in the neurosciences and the psychological sciences. But it's the most interesting thing to, to build on your point. In making ourselves vulnerable and transparent, and realizing that the key to learning is in not knowing, seeking that assistance, that help, meaning that we're teachable, I find people want to rise to the occasion and they wanna meet that need, they wanna help. And that's a great thing that builds bridges and can certainly present pathways to resolution. Absolutely. You know, um, I'm just, I'm just Deborah, please. Is that, you know, with that, 
you know, that is like you mentioned, um, Jason, is the humility and, and therefore the vulnerability, because oftentimes it's pride that gets in the way of people, you know, reaching resolution by saying, you know, help me understand. I don't, I, I'm not, I'm seeing the picture, but I'm not quite seeing, you know, the, the differences or the details. And so that's where, you know, as a mediator, we're, we're often in the role of modeling, you know, behavior that's helpful. To shifting people to resolution, and so showing our own vulnerability by saying, you know, help me understand or say more about that. I'm, I'm not quite connecting the dots here uh, because sometimes people are talking and they don't realize where there are gaps in the information and where there may be a lack of understanding. And so again, I see our role as mediators is helping bring that to light, bring that to surface, and um, and. As Harold said in his eloquent quote, you know, um, lifelong learning is is in what we we don't know. And uh, and so seeking to understand what we can learn uh, and how to have learning conversations, not difficult confrontations. That's really good. And and really to go back to the first question that I asked the both of you, when we talk about the essence of mediation, um, I think we might be able to say that the essence of a mediator is modeled humility, right? We're teaching our, our, our parties to be willing to, to put themselves out there uh, through asking the questions and, and sharing of themselves in a slightly different way. I think that's fantastic. I'd love to ask you another question. Uh, Harold, I'd love to start with you on this. You know, we've talked about, you know, the essence of mediation. We've talked about uh, the education for mediation, but in your view, uh, as a person who has been a part of this field for, for so many years, just how should one define mediation success? How do you define success for a mediator? Uh, you know, I'm going to actually uh, take a stab at this, Jason, by looking at the obverse. I'll tell you in my judgment how you don't define and measure mediation success. It should not be in terms of deal or no deal. It should not be in terms of, quote, settlement, end quote as so many have fallen prey to that fallacy, thinking that, well, in, on game day, if we don't get a, quote, settlement, end quote, then what a big waste of time this was. You know, the mediation, if done ethically and effectively, uh, has so many positive outcomes, whether or not there is a deal, so to speak, on game day. Uh, how many of us have had cases where it didn't resolve on the day uh, when we convened the parties for plenary mediation, but it resolves shortly thereafter within two weeks, maybe a month, who knows, after parties have had a chance to go back and to reconstruct in their own minds and reflect on things. And maybe we have really opened the communication lines to the point where now for the first time they can both look within themselves in terms of really, what am I really in this for? What do I really need? And also look without in terms of, well, how can I more productively engage the other party so we can hopefully now get this resolved? Uh, unfortunately, we have a consuming marketplace that tends to measure mediation success in terms of whether or not we get a settlement. And that is the terminal objective on game day. Uh, I have come to learn, and this was an educational function as well as a uh, practice proficiency function, but I have come to learn that very simply 
um, what we need to do is bring value to the process. And then, you know, when we do that and we assist parties with getting the absolute best information that they can get in coming to an informed decision as to what's in their best interest, then you don't have to hard sell settlement. You really don't. It becomes somewhat apparent. Now, you know, of course, the plot thickens and, uh, you know, Deborah, uh, Dr. Dupree would certainly speak to this in terms of, yeah, uh, before they could even get that far along, there may need to be a lot of emotional processing so they can get into the rational state of mind to where they can then uh, take a more objective look at the uh, information needed to make a decision and to weigh that information in terms of, you know, how efficacious is it, the strengths, weaknesses, et cetera. But it all presupposes that we first stabilize the patient. So uh, there's a whole other aspect to this, Jason, to where the emotional dimension of mediation has to be dealt with first so we can get to the other part. So let me just circle back and just conclude with this. Uh, we don't measure mediation success in terms of deal or no deal. Mediation success should be measured in my judgment in terms of the value brought to the process to enable parties to constructively engage, to get the best information they can to weigh in reaching the, their expression of self-determination as to what the appropriate outcome should be. And, and whether then, no matter what that outcome is, they can achieve cognitive peace because of the process, even if the outcome is not what they necessarily would have wanted, even if it settles and they're not necessarily happy with the settlement, if they can walk away from the process and say, but you know what, I was treated respectfully. Uh, I was heard. I was, I was in some ways validated. And you know what, I feel good about the process. And I think it might make me a little more adept at navigating conflict on my own in the future, Jason, those are, are outstanding outcomes. So we don't measure it in terms of deal or no deal. It's just not that simple. Well, and you bring up something very important there. Uh, when you talk about uh, shifting away from the mindset of deal or no deal and that being the barometer for success, when we juxtapose that with the marketplace mindset of, you know, it's a win or a loss, right? You get the deal or you don't get the deal that can tend to become a slippery slope because then, you know, with that added pressure can come the temptation to, to, wall, to fold on, 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 ethical, on ethical matters. Um, and it brings to mind a, uh, and I'd love for you to, to talk about this briefly if you can, I, it brings to mind a, a program that you did, uh, you know, years back that, uh, that had a very provocative title called Lying for the Sake of the Deal. Can you tell me a little bit about that particular program and, and how that, relates to your answer about um, how we should define mediation success and ultimately how we should teach the marketplace what success should look like. Well, you know, and I, I want to give attribution also to my good colleague, Becky Callahan. She and I did a series of presentations before bar associations and others on that very topic, and we penned an article on it. It is very simply titled, very titled, uh, Zeal for the Deal. Okay, what mediators, parties, and counsel alike will do in their zeal to get a deal. 
and it has to do with deception and lying and slanting, et cetera, and mediation, uh, all of which are very, very highly unethical. Um, and, and you're right, Jason. I mean, there's a consuming marketplace that expects results, and the result they have in mind is very simply that, you know, well, settlement. If it doesn't settle, then they fall into this binary thinking, win or lose. Either we settled or we didn't. And therefore, you're either a winner or a loser. And it's just not that simple. There can be many impediments to resolution on a particular day for settlement that are all very, very, very earned, very, very real. And then the good mediator, the effective mediator, will try to help navigate around and through that so that if we're not quite ready to mediate outcome today, then let's mediate process to ready ourselves for outcome down the road. So uh, it's not so simple as because uh, counsel is an example, select a particular date on which to motivate or which to mediate. And then we automatically assume that they're ready. They're ready substantively. The parties are ready substantively, attitudinally and emotionally. They may not be. And you don't learn that until you get to mediation unless mediators do as Dr. Dupree and I teach and really espouse and practice, really spend the time on the front end in the prep. Okay, much more time spent in the prep than maybe even the time at mediation to assess and diagnose a number of things in answering the question, are we truly ready? Operative term underscore ready. Are we truly ready to mediate? That's fantastic. That's fantastic. I, I, Dr. Dupree, I'd love to, to come to you and, and ask you the same question. How do you define mediation success? Well, thank you for that opportunity. I, I just want to tap into a few things that uh, Harold has already mentioned. Um, I will say, you know, earlier in my earlier in my career, when I used to train um, professionals from various walks of life to become workplace mediators, I remember meeting one individual um, from another state who said, "Well, how many how many mediations have you won?" And it's like I just looked at him dumbfounded, going, "What one? I mean, excuse me." So that's mindset right there. Uh, you know, it's it's about reaching resolution. And so uh, ABA, um, ACR, Association for Conflict Resolution, um, uh, a, um, AAA, you know, have all been engaged in research in the past. And, and so, you know, statistics have, you know, steadily shown that even when people don't reach resolution uh, in their mediation, although mediation is highly successful, a good 80 to 90% of the time, that people are still highly satisfied with the process. And from my experience, the particular type of issues that I mediate, primarily in workplace and in some family, it's oftentimes mediation is the first time they've been able to speak and be heard about what their concerns are and what how they've been impacted by whatever the dispute is. And so the the success of mediation um, you know, yes, our goal is resolution of the issues, but it's really the facilitation of people to be able to address their concerns in a way that, um, you know, that they feel safe. I'll go back to that again, uh, and, uh, and that they feel heard. And so that's something that we as mediators, um, I think, are, is critical. It's of essence in our professional and ethical roles to ensure that people are, 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 are being heard in the process. And that then leads to success on the part of mediation, whether or not they have reached resolution. And so, uh, and, and that's where I go back to, you know, we talked about words matter. 
in even the use of deal or no deal. Excuse me. Um, how about just we're, we're seeking resolution issues that brought you to the table. And uh, so this is where we need to change our nomenclature uh, in the mediation process to make sure that it really is achieving the intended goals and uh, intended outcomes of what the process is really designed to do. Can I build on something very, very quickly? Uh, I want to commend to everyone's uh, listening a uh, podcast that uh, Dr. Dupree and I did on this very topic of words. And, and we, we titled it Words Matter mediation and the language of lawyering, mediation and the language of lawyering. And what we do there is we really unpack this and look at the terminology uh, and phraseology that's used at mediation that really can be counterproductive to the process. Do we really have to refer to the parties as uh, your opponent or opposing counsel? You're talking about the, uh, or, or even, I don't even like the phraseology, the other side. You know, it just forces polarized thinking. So we talk about the different terms that are used that are not efficacious towards what we're trying to do. And we need to step out of that adversarial bit. Absolutely. I mean, when we think about the terms we use, it absolutely assumes an adversarial model. And so I, I echo uh, the, and, uh, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the invitation for the listener to, to check out that particular podcast, Words Matter. Thank you so much for bringing that up. And with that in mind, I'd like to you know just do a small pivot. Uh, Harold, coming back to you in talking about this upcoming uh, institute. And so the question that I have is, how does the ABA Institute's public service focus align with that of aaamediation.org which is a division of the nonprofit dispute resolution provider organization, American Arbitration Association. Well, you know, the American Arbitration Association is the largest and the oldest of all of the dispute resolution providers uh, formed in 1926. And we have uh, actually administered hundreds of thousands of mediations in this nearly 100 year history even though mediation isn't technically in our name. Uh, well, I guess it is, and it is in aamediation.org now, it, it truly is. But the point is, uh, we operate in the nonprofit space. You know, everything we do, in, in the words of our CEO, I think is so well stated, is for the cause of the three Ps, the parties, the process, and the public. The parties, everything we do has to really bring value and meet the real serviceable needs of the parties who repose their trust and their confidence in us to administer neutral and really quality driven uh, processes, confidential ADR processes, mediation being uh, chief among them. Uh, the process of ADR itself, you know, to make sure that we are thought leaders in this space uh, for ethical uh, practice of ADR. And then thirdly, the public, everything that we do is for the public good. We don't, we're, we're not a, uh, you know, not a for-profit entity. Maximizing shareholder wealth is not what it's about for us because we exist for the public good. And that brings us squarely into alignment with the ABA because as a nonprofit uh, industry association of lawyers, the largest and the oldest also, that is precisely why ABA exists and why 
I'm so excited to now co-chair for the fifth year in a row, the Advanced um, Mediation and Advocacy Skills Training Institute, because education is central to both nonprofit missions, those of the American Arbitration Association and AAMediation.org, and on the one hand, and uh, ABA on the other. So we are totally and squarely in alignment. It's another reason why we at the association are so proud to be platinum sponsor again to the ABA for this really, really heady, deep, rich uh, think tank and clinic that we offer each year in the form of advanced mediation and advocacy skills training. Fantastic. And and Deborah, I know you have a significant hand in the preparation and the planning for this particular institute. So I would love to, to get your answer on this. What is the mission of the ABA's annual advanced mediation and advocacy skills training institute? You know, it's uh, I am very excited to be part of the planning committee and, and to bring to bring together, you know, various perspectives. And, and that's exactly what this conference is all about, is to um Take a look at leading social, behavioral, and legal authorities in the field to, to bring together different perspectives about how to deal with people in conflict, you know, strategies, um, thinking, um, models, and so forth. And, uh, and to really, as we talked about before, the interdisciplinary approach, because people are people, and uh, conflict is conflict. And um, conflicts arise in all kinds of things that are not necessarily legally based, but still people relational community uh, efforts. And so it's really an opportunity to continue our learning, um, our, our vision for, for where the field is going, and particularly in the post-pandemic era. You know, we've learned a lot in, in the early stages of the pandemic about, you know, many of us believe, oh, we have to be in person for mediation. And yet, hmm, quite surprisingly, you know, um, we've had some huge successes in uh, conducting mediations virtually. And so continuing to look at not only how we can effectively and ethically deliver mediation and facilitate mediations virtually and in person, uh, but really what truly works for our parties and then the technological aspects of it as well. And so it's really, again, to advance the learning uh, among uh, all people involved in the field of dispute resolution. And what I really quickly um, in, you know, enjoy for this 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 conference is you know the focus on how advocates can show up and uh, you know prepare their parties, their clients for mediation uh, because they're integral components of, of many mediation settings. And so, um, how can we further that collaboration rather than um, uh, uh, adversity uh, mindsets in the mediation process? And so um, that's really the mission: is bringing people together from all fields. Uh, to to look at the advances, uh, what we've learned, what we can still learn, and, and what, how can we continue to intensify. Fantastic, fantastic. And then when we talk about you know what the institute is going to feature this year, uh, it goes in a number of directions. Uh, you know, uh, your keynote speakers being Alexandra Carter and and Ken Cloak, uh, you know, which are both going to be fantastic and, and amazing. But when we even look at the breakout sessions, I know that. Uh, uh, Deborah, you are, are part of, a, of one particular uh, breakout called Effective Emotional Interventions. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I'm, I'm really proud to um, collaborate once again with Harold, uh, as well as our um, uh, 
collaborator, Bill Eddy, we, we did a joint presentation for another organization about a year ago. And, um, and so this is a deeper dive into, you know, the emotional elements behind people in conflict and what drives them. Uh, as Harold said before, is that, you know, if we don't deal with the emotional elements behind people in conflict before we really get to the factual things, we may never reach resolution. And, you know, from a, a psychological neuroscience perspective, we know emotions precede cognitions. And so it's really critical that we as professionals working with people in conflict know how to effectively you know, bring out emotions, but also manage emotions in the heat of conflict. And so that's what our plenary is all about, is uh, taking a look at and how, how do we address the emotional elements of people in conflict and how do we strategically manage that to successfully reach, um, help them reach resolution? So it's, it's a, a pretty fascinating area and we're excited to, to bring to uh, the professionals in the field those depths of the psychological components. Well, that sounds very, very uh, exciting and, and very you know, thought-provoking. Uh, what would be the best way for people to find out and learn more about this particular institute? Well, we can certainly, um, you know, we, we have an excellent uh, conference brochure, but certainly visiting uh, the, uh, the uh, ABA, or, I'm sorry, it's called the AMBAR.org forward slash MED, M-E-D, 2022. Um, that's the website for it. And uh, they can easily you know, sign up and we're still accepting registrations. And we're really looking for a, a, a tremendous turnout on December 1st through the 3rd, coming up very soon. And um uh, excited about uh, our final stages. Fantastic. And so, you know, I, I, again, I want to thank uh, both you and Harold for your time. Uh, and, and as we wrap up our conversation today, uh, there's one final question. I'd like to start with Harold and then uh, Deborah, Dr. Dupree, you can, uh, you can round us out. But uh, what do you foresee as the future of mediation domestically and internationally? Harold, I'd love to hear from you. I think you know, we're going to continue to see mediation expand because of its high utility. And we talked about success earlier, defining success for, for just that is very high success rate in terms of offering meaningful alternatives to the traditional court system and allowing for greater access to justice. So we'll continue to just uh, this upward trajectory has been on literally now for the last three decades. Uh, what we're going to see also, and with all the intel that uh, the association we receive and in the circles in which I travel and the training that I do, uh, I will tell you, Jason, that uh, mixed modes and hybrid processes are really starting to come of age. Uh, in the international ADR community, uh, you know, MEDAR and then ARP MED. Are, uh, have been around for quite some time and they're very, very well received in, in certain cultures and especially in what are called civil law jurisdictions. Uh, we're gonna start to see more of that stateside too. We really are blending of processes. It does present some uh, potential challenges on the ethics front to make sure that uh, there are to be blendings of roles or mixing of roles that is done in a way that's envisioned by uh, standard six or the model standards of conduct for mediators on quality of the process. But uh, those issues can be mitigated. Uh, we're aware of what's going on. Fantastic, thank you. And, and Dr. Deborah Dupree, I would love to hear uh, what you foresee as the future of mediation domestically and internationally. 
Thank you. You know, um, having been a, a longtime educator in the mediation field, um, sometimes I'm surprised that we're not further along. Uh, but then again, um, you know, what I would say, you know, like in so many aspects of today's world is that there's been a real burgeoning explosion, I see, of, of the use of mediation, particularly because of um, uh, virtual access to it. Uh, it's made it easier for people to access the, the use of mediation um, for resolution of the dispute. And, uh, you know, we've got a long way to go in educating, and uh, um, and that's why efforts like this are so wonderful as far as helping people understand that this is a, a tool, a, a highly effective tool for helping people reach resolution. Um, and, you know, because I have spoken and taught internationally, too, I'm, I'm really impressed with what I see other countries doing in the expanding uh, application of mediation um, in, in various aspects. And um, one of the things that I was encouraged by, too, is, you know, given some of our community distress, uh, unrest that we've experienced, you know, in the last couple of years, I'm seeing more mobile units of dispute resolution reaching out to communities. And so I think that that's just excellent. So I think there's going to be continuing to be um, you know, very innovative and entrepreneurial kinds of ways of how to get services out there. And I say entrepreneurial, not from a you know financially lucrative perspective, but instead, you know, innovative ideas for how to make um, mediation as a tool for dispute resolution more accessible uh, across across things, not just in the legal circles, but in the community circles as well. That's fantastic. And and one uh, you know a recurring theme in both of your answers was the word access. And that increased access as we move forward uh, in this particular field. I want to thank you both so much for uh, for lending uh, your thoughts and uh, and your expertise to uh, to this particular program. For for Dr. Deborah Dupree and for Harold Coleman, I'm Jason Harper, and this has been Resolutions, a podcast about dispute resolution and prevention. Take it easy. <laughs>